0: Hey, everyone. This is Peter Levin, and you're listening to another episode of In Good Hands, a show about the companies and founders solving our climate crisis. Today, I interview Caroline Cotto, co-founder and COO of Renewal Mill. In some of our previous episodes, we've introduced you to a couple companies and startups that are introducing foods into the world from a totally different approach. Remember, toast, right? They create beer from leftover bread. And the broader problem that they're focused on solving is food waste. Food waste is one of the primary emitters of greenhouse gases in the world today. So repurposing goods that would have gone to waste into things like foods and beverages and things of that sort that are delicious and edible is both A, great for the world at large and B, it's just an awesome opportunity to introduce products into the world that people love. What Renewal Mill is doing is creating an entire ingredients company based on this notion of upcycled goods. And in the episode, Caroline and I will discuss how her and her co-founders arrived at this opportunity, the first product that they brought to market, working with some of the largest food producers in the world, and the moonshot for a company like Renewal Mill. So without further ado, I hope you enjoy our conversation with Caroline Cotto, co-founder and COO of Renewal Mill. Caroline, welcome to the show.
1: Thanks so much for having me.
0: Caroline, let's jump right into the basics. What is Renewal Mill?
1: Renewal Mill is a next-generation ingredients company. So we're working to fight climate change and global food waste by upcycling the byproducts of food manufacturing into premium ingredients and finished plant-based products.
0: Let's unpack that a little bit. Can you quickly demystify or explain the notion of upcycling to our listeners?
1: Absolutely. So upcycling is making sure that anything, but in this case food, gets put to its best and highest use. So it's different than recycling. We're not taking something and breaking it down into its component parts. We're actually just taking it in the way that it was already made and then elevating it to a higher use. So for example, in our case, We're taking the pulps left over from food manufacturing and dehydrating them and milling them into flours to make sure that we're able to keep that valuable nutrition in the food supply chain.
0: Interesting. I got two questions here, but let's take it a step further. What set of products does this process manifest in? What is the line of Renewal Mill products today? And then How did you actually arrive at this? You know, like my hunch is that there's probably a number of possibilities when you look at upcycling at step one and what the end product could be. So maybe first talk about how you arrived at this opportunity and what the product suite looks like today.
1: Yeah. So I have a co-founder. Her name is Claire, and she actually founded Boston's first organic juice company. She survived cancer in her 20s and got really interested in the benefits of healthy food and in bringing healthy, locally grown, locally sourced food to the inner city of Boston through juicing. So she started as a food truck and started at a lot of local farmers markets. And as she kept going and started expanding and launched her first brick and mortar restaurant, she quickly realized that at the end of every day, she was left with this huge mountain of pulp from the, the fruits and the vegetables that she was juicing. And she started trying to figure out ways to use it, making crackers, making muffins, but there was only so many carapulp muffins that she could make in order to deal with this ever-growing mountain of pulp. So she was like, there, there's there got to be something better that I can do with this. She decided to go to Yale to get a master's in environmental management. And while she was there, ended up just having a fortuitous meeting with Min Tsai, who's the CEO and founder of Hodo Foods which is the third largest tofu company in the country and they're based here in Oakland. And they got to chatting and and Claire was telling him about her her juice pulp problem and he was like, "You think you make a lot of pulp? I make more than 50 tons a week in my tofu facility." So they realized quickly that they had this analogous problem with food waste that was actually super nutritious. It's actually some of the most nutritious parts of the initial inputs. So a lot of that fiber that's left in the the vegetables and the fruits and also in the soybeans was just going to waste. So that's kind of how the idea for Renewal Mill got wow. started. There's like we we got to solve this issue. There's got to be a way to to do something with all of this.
0: I just wanted to quickly clarify on the Hodu partnership because I think one of the core uh, challenges in starting a startup at all but in food and Bev specifically is step one, Maya one, sourcing. Where are you going to get the product? Mm-hmm. And so I mean, really, does, does all or most of that input into Renewal Mill's product line today start with Hodo's waste or right excess?
1: Yeah, so Hodo is our first partner.
0: Uh-huh. Renewal
1: Mill has a distributed model. So we work with multiple partners and to put our technology into their factories to help them reduce their environmental impact and do this upcycling. But Hodo has been a really amazing first partner. They actually allowed us to, to incubate in their space. So we worked out of their facility for a while before we got a little too big and moved around the corner. But they continued to be one of our most important partners.
0: Got it. And what an interesting start to the company's journey. And then how did you cross paths with Claire? And then what inspired your interest in this problem set
1: specifically? Yeah. So my background is more just on the nutrition side of things. So I uh, spent a lot of time working on child obesity. I went to school in Washington, D.C. and kind of first came face to face with that in the food deserts there in Anacostia and understanding sort of the real negative health effects that come from not having access to fresh food and nutritious food. And then kind of spent some time working on child malnutrition and tech before looking for a way to combine all of those interests and ended up working for the Techstars Farm to Fork Accelerator, which was helping incubate businesses along the entire food supply chain. And then came face to face with Claire there and I had recently learned about food waste and combining that with my my passion for nutrition. That was a very natural fit.
0: Wow. Okay. So now Renewal has... At least initially, access to this pipeline of material that can now manifest in these wonderful products. After you uh, formalize that partnership, get to work incubating in their facility. How do you arrive at the first product to to output? What does that process process look like, and how does you know this idea or the realization now translate into? product number one that makes the most sense?
1: Claire had come face to face with juicing and juice Mm -hmm. pulp. And that's a very distributed model in the US. So a lot of the the people who are amassing lots of amounts of juice pulp are these really small producers. And it's hard to sort of congregate that material into a single location for processing. And it adds a lot of carbon output to be transporting it so we knew that we wanted to start with sort of byproducts that were made in large volumes in a relatively centralized location. So soy okara was a really natural fit. It's also already a FDA, USDA recognized ingredient. So okara is the actual recognized name for the ingredient that means the soybean pulp left over when you make soy milk. And it's been used in countries like Japan for centuries. So if you made soy milk at home, you would never throw away that pulp. You would use it in dishes like savory pancakes or konamayaki or saute it with vegetables, which is actually a huge, it, it helped us remove a barrier to entry because a lot of other things that are being upcycled in the US are novel ingredients and have to go through a really long process to be recognized as safe and formally made into ingredients. So starting with okara was a good starting point because we knew that it was actually an ingredient. There's been Mm -hmm. academic research studies on its health benefits and it's a relatively centralized market. So you can capture a lot of the pulp waste with a relatively few number of factory installations.
0: Wow. And today, I mean, I'm on the site now and I can see you guys have tons of products, brownie mix, baking flour dark chocolate brownie mix. So talk me through after you guys introduce this to life, what happens next? Do you guys instantly start thinking about products two, three, four? I mean, at that point in the journey, um, what what is the, the top of mind priority? Is it establishing online channels? What does the state of affairs look like at Renewable Mill?
1: Yeah, so first and foremost, Renoma wants to be an ingredients company. We want to be the go-to ingredient supplier for upcycled ingredients for the food industry. The sales cycle, however, for new ingredient sales to large institutional food companies is quite long. It's about two to three years. And so in the interim, we have commercialized our first ingredient, Okara, but it's kind of hard to understand what that is if you can't taste it. So that's why we started creating CPG products made with that ingredient in order to have something to bring to trade shows and have people understand, "Oh, I can taste okara and I can understand why it's it's great, why it's a nutritious delicious ingredient." So we started with a vegan soft-baked chocolate chip cookie made with the okara flour and then kind of realized that there was a demand for more baking mix products for people wanting to to use the flour in their own products. So we created retail skew of the okara flour, a one-to-one baking flour using the okara. So that's a little bit more friendly for the home cook if you're not so familiar with alternative flours and you want to just have a cup-for-cup solution. And then Mm. the next level was uh, the brownie mix, which features not only the okara, but two additional upcycled ingredients and is just add oil and water. And then we're working on bringing our next ingredient to market, which will be the oat pulp leftover from oat milk processing and turning that into a upcycled oat flour.
0: Interesting. So let's start with the oat milk because I, I have a question about the sales cycle, but the oat milk is interesting because, I mean, we've seen an explosion of interest in that product specifically. I think at least here in, in, in the city, <laughs> <like> <laughs> yeah, a lot definitely. of the, a lot of the, the cafes, if you're not offering oat milk people are like come
1: on guys you know
0: this is the default option for a lot of consumers today
1: yeah Um, it has definitely unseated almond milk i feel like for sure not only (laughs) is it, it more sustainable than almond milk but it's just really delicious yeah so with the explosion of oat milk's popularity so too has there been an explosion in the the byproducts left over because With some almond milks, you can actually grind down the entire nut and keep that in suspension in the milk. But with oats, that pulp is often filtered out. And so you're left with huge volumes of this nutritious, fibrous oat pulp that we can turn into a high-protein, high-fiber flour.
0: So talk me through the moonshot here, right? You told me a little bit about, at the beginning, you're an ingredients company, and ideally the way that this manifests in the world is by working with some of these large incumbent food companies. Who are these food companies, right? But as you work through these sales cycles, where does this end up? Is this you know, in, in large restaurant chains? Are these with other companies that have their own consumer-facing products and they should use your upcycled ingredients to start re-engineering those products? T- can you talk through a little bit of Of what that looks like?
1: So the moonshot is for every company to be using upcycled ingredients where they can until we no longer have global food waste as the number one driver of climate change. There's a lot of easy substitutes that large food companies can make in the products they're already making. So for example, if they use an oat flour, they could easily substitute that for an upcycled oat flour and and kind of have a one-for-one swap. Or if they're looking for ways to add fiber, instead of adding inulin or chicory root fiber or all of these fiber derivatives, why not just add an upcycled product that has that same benefit? So our ideal customers are people like Clif Bar, people making snacks that are you know healthier, and they're looking for for sort of natural sources of key nutrients. Mm -hmm. as well as people like Kroger that are making products for their own private label grocery store items or Whole Foods that are doing the same thing for their 365 organic brand. We want everyone to be using upcycled ingredients where they can, because they really have a myriad amount of benefits that would add not only environmental benefits to their product, but also all of these nutritional benefits and functional benefits as well.
0: Wow. And so I understand why the cycle might be long because engineering a new ingredient has, my guess, is introduces a, c- a cascade of decisions that have to be checked off and then re-engineering processes. But one of the questions is price competition. Mm-hmm. Do the upcycled ingredients compete fairly well on price point?
1: They do. I think there's a notion that because it's upcycled, it automatically needs to be cheaper, which is not Mm -hmm. always the case. We are getting these low-cost inputs, which allows us to be price competitive, but there is still a processing factor that needs to be done. And these are really premium ingredients. We're sourcing super organic, non-GMO, high-quality products. So we are price competitive with other similarly organic, non-GMO flours but definitely hard to compete with just baseline commodities like all purpose at this point. Mm-hmm. We do see a point in the future where we could have potentially like conventional SKUs and these organic non-GMO SKUs and that could change the pricing a little bit, but uh, definitely less expensive than some other alternative flowers that we're competing with like things like almond flour or nut flowers or quinoa flowers.
0: Caroline, this is so interesting. I we had toast beer. Oh, yeah, uh, on the podcast. Fellow upcycler,
1: yeah,
0: (laughs) yes. And to me, it's such a when you're able to at minimum hold price relatively flat. Maybe there's a small delta, but you're able to deliver on high quality and have that socially conscious bend as a feature. I mean, that's when you have these super fascinating unlocks on opportunity. So if we zoom out for a second, I would love to hear your perspective on some of the more interesting trends that you're seeing in food more broadly. What other companies are either working on, on introducing upcycling into the supply chain in interesting ways? Maybe it's a company like food for all that helps sell unsold meals. like What are you seeing here that's really piqued your interest in the state of food more broadly?
1: Yeah, I think upcycling has been circling around for the last few years, but it's really having a moment right now. Back Mm -hmm. in October, we helped found the Upcycled Food Association and started with nine members and have already grown to over 70 members in just over six months. Um, So there's a lot of people that are doing upcycling at all different parts of the supply chain with pretty much all different types of food inputs. There's a a really cool company using avocado pits to make a unique tea. People doing all sorts of things with cacao pods and cacao fruit from big players like Barry Calibut, who have a huge hold on the chocolate industry to much smaller players like Candid that are making just ready-to-eat products with that same input. Mm-hmm. And then there's folks like Full Harvest that are kind of targeting on-farm waste and making sure that we get all of that produce in as inputs for both food service and large CPD companies. And then, yeah, I think that coupled with regenerative agriculture, we're seeing this huge resurgence in sustainability and that millennial buyers and, and Gen Z buyers are actually willing to pay more for all of these sustainable products and that sustainability claims actually matter more to them than some things like organic um, or non-GMO, which is wow. different than you know how their parents might purchase.
0: That is super interesting. We had the founder of Sheets and Giggles on the show and they sell sustainable bedding sheets and comforters. And his perspective was pretty eye-opening to me. His thinking is, as consumers, specifically American consumers, we've been programmed with a consumer mindset from the moment we're born. We're given toy cash registers. We're given (laughs) fake money to play with. So in in many ways, we are very sophisticated buyers, and we can sniff real from fake very easily. And It's why when he talks about messaging, he thinks that if sustainability is the primary selling point, that it's a losing fight. Because when it comes down to it, consumers want either more convenient, they want comfier, they want a more competitive price point. And the sustainability messaging is a feature, right? It should be built in to the model but it shouldn't be something that people lead with. What's your opinion there?
1: I agree. We were talking to the CEO of Once Upon a Farm, who also was the former uh, CEO of Annie's, and he said, first and foremost, it has to taste good. Like Consumers are always going to care most about how it tastes and what it does for them. So when we've done a lot of consumer surveys, we see that good source of fiber and good source of protein are always going to be the the number one claims that people care about because they want they're self-serving. They wanna know what's gonna do for me. But mm-hmm. then right after that, we're seeing sustainability. So it's not a and or, it's a both, right? It's I, I totally agree with him that you have to back it up with good flavor and good health benefits or whatever claims, like super indulgent if that's what you're going for, yeah. but that sustainability should be right there as well.
0: Caroline, can I pitch you an idea?
1: Yeah, absolutely.
0: And I want I want your cold hard take. Tell me if it's good, if it's terrible. I, I, want, okay. I want the real, true Caroline. I'm ready. <laughs> okay, so. so I've been fascinated in the relatively new phenomenon of ugly. Uh-huh. Right? We, we've seen that manifest in Imperfect Produce and Misfits Market. And for the listeners, I mean, they should know by now, we've had a couple episodes in this, but essentially going to – the source of food production, farms, taking the ugly-looking fruits and vegetables, and then either selling those directly or repurposing them into other products. For me, one of the products that I buy most often are breakfast bars, okay, specifically Nutrigrain. And if you look at the the that category specifically, they really haven't changed much. It's roughly the same price point, roughly the same taste profile. What do you think, if any, about an opportunity to introduce Ugly Bar into the world, which is effectively a nutri bar that's made from ugly strawberries, ugly blueberries? I mean, maybe you run down the list, but probably starting with those two. Love it, hate it, bullish, bearish? What do you think?
1: (laughs) Oh, love it. I would be – there's a difference here. I think there's a slight nuance. I would one. I would question whether Nitrogen is already using ugly produce because mm-hmm. there's a, there's a difference as far as like, are you actually preventing something from going to a food waste destination, or are you just being a good capitalist and getting something that is a little bit cheaper, but nobody would ever know because mm-hmm. um, it was going to be applesauce to begin with, and like who cares what it, the apples look like, or it was going to be fruit compote to begin with, and and people, mm-hmm. you know, don't care what that looks like. So I think. Yes. The answer is the world would love ugly bar. <laughs> Maybe use Okara in that, you know, flour batter that uh-huh. you're, you're using to make that sort of soft baked bar or other alternative spent grain flours or or oat flour, for, <laughs> for example. But yeah, I think trying to make sure that the, the ugly produce that you're sourcing to is actually coming from a food waste destination. And that's why the Upcycled Food Association is working on an Upcycled product certification so that we're not. We're kind of avoiding greenwashing and having a stamp that really tells the consumer and builds that trust to say, this is actually doing what it claims to be doing. And not every hot dog or applesauce producer can just slap a logo on their, their package.
0: Mm-hmm. That's super interesting. I, I see the same opportunity actually across all of food in general, the lack of information that consumers have at the point of sale. To me, it looks like a massive opportunity, right? If we can give consumers more information, they can make empowered buying decisions. So we see it with Just Salad, their carbon labeling. They're, they'll be the first restaurant chain to carbon la- label their, f- their full menu. I'm wondering maybe when it comes to meats, I would love to see a regenerative agriculture stamp or label of some sort, right? If I'm buying beef or chick- whatever it is, and I knew that it came from a source that was using uh, planet healing processes, that could sway my decision, right? Buying one versus the other. One concern on that front, and we've seen it in organic, and GMO, is defining success. What are those metrics? And then obviously then making sure it gets implemented across the board. Getting adoption is another tricky question. But as you think about introducing that label into existence, what are some of those like key criteria that you look to make sure that brands are checking off before getting rights to the certification?
1: Yeah. So we just appointed a standards committee to sort of answer this exact question. What is the sort of checklist that that brands have to meet? We announced a formal definition of upcycled food that was drafted by Drexel University in partnership with um, Harvard Food Law and Policy Clinic and NRDC and World Wildlife Foundation and a bunch of of other players to put out the tenets of what upcycled food is and what it's not. And then using that as a baseline to determine this standard. So we know that we are going to have to do some environmental impact tracking, whether or not that's carbon emissions or water saved or land saved. And what does that look like and how do we measure it? And how do we communicate that mm-hmm. to, to really make sure that it's an authentic third-party certification that has as much power as organic?
0: Hmm. Yeah, first of all, super interesting. I'm excited to see that come to life. Like I said, the more information that consumers have when they're making purchasing decisions, the better. People are smart. If if there's a clear distinction between product A and product B, and we have the information to make that decision, we're going to do it. One of the things that I've been thinking a lot about as I interview founders and people tinkering on ideas, specifically in food, is the margins are so tricky. Right, like we talk about, if we take this the ugly bar example, the average price point that people are buying those are are sub ten dollars, and they're packed with twelve bars,
1: Mm -hmm.
0: right? And if most most people are buying these in stores, right? You're not buying Nutra Grain online; you're going to your local grocery store, right? Most likely, nine out of ten times, which means that you're actually selling to the grocer Mm -hmm. for fifty percent of the MSRP, maybe a little bit less. So that to me is the trickiest thing. It really is hard to introduce a viable, sustainable alternative that's still delicious, that's price competitive, Uh right, as a new entrant to the space. I mean, you're now working with so many upstarts that are taking this approach or prioritizing upcycled ingredients as they introduce products into the world. How have you seen new entrants navigate that challenge specifically? Are they starting with DTC only to own a little bit more of the margin? What are you seeing there?
1: Yeah, I think all of this is complicated by the lens of COVID as well. Mm -hmm. Everybody, yeah, it is hard to start a food company. It's hard to run CPG, I think one of, one of my favorite quotes is, uh, we worked with a company here called Humphrey Slocum, which is an ice cream brand based in San Francisco. And their head of operations, when we were launching our new brownie mix, said to us straight up, CPG is a bloodbath. <laughs> it's really hard to eke out those margins. And especially right now in retail, they're cutting the SKUs on shelf and kind of really paring down, even from a few years ago, what's able to mm-hmm. make it on. As far as the upcycled food landscape and how we see people approaching it, I wish there was sort of a uniform approach, but it's still a little bit spaghetti on the wall as far as people trying out different avenues. There's some people that went straight for food service, and that's actually what we were doing prior to COVID. We were selling our cookies mostly to tech companies in the Bay Area for office snacks because it's a great way to get right in front of our target demographic, these eco-conscious millennials who wanna understand where their food came from and care about Mm -hmm. sustainable purchasing. But obviously with COVID that fell out from underneath us. And so we've had to pivot to really sell through direct to consumer and e-commerce. If you weren't already on retail shelves, it's been really hard to get space on those shelves since they've stopped sort of product reviews. And so we see a lot of people taking different approaches. I think um, affinity platforms are really interesting. So places like Imperfect Foods and Misfits Market are opening up their virtual shelves to other upcycled companies, and that's been a huge value for us. So we're actually selling our cookies through Imperfect, we're selling our flour and baking mixes through Misfits Market, um, and again, reaching that same target customer who cares about this topic who cares about climate change who's already Mm. comfortable with the the topic of upcycling and then we're also targeting like vegan platforms and and places where folks care about their food and the impact that their food has on the environment i see some other upcyclers who are sort of taking a more um, mainstream approach and and trying to go into more traditional retail outlets but i think it it depends on your product and sort of how far off of the mainstream it is as well.
0: The affinity platform is super interesting because you can imagine as purchasing does shift online in an accelerated fashion at the moment, really misfits market and imperfect provide this self-selection, like forcing function, right? If you're a customer, Maybe you've been a customer of them already, but if not, if you're a new customer, you land on their site, you can probably assume that they fit a set of criteria that are aligned with your value system as you choose decision, choose to buy certain foods and beverages. So getting on these sites, I and mean, that's super interesting. It's got to be a huge win for some of these brands that, like you said, are really stuck in amidst this pandemic, can't make their way you know, in, in pitch rooms while retailers are turning off product reviews. That's, that's really interesting. Absolutely, um, yeah.
1: Imperfect, for example, has opened doors for a lot of upcycling companies. One here is uh, a friend of mine who runs a company called Ugly Pickle. They're taking the farm produce that is ugly and turning it into delicious pickles and spreads. And they had planned to, wow. to launch in a bunch of retail grocery stores, and that's been put on, on pause for COVID, but have had a, a burgeoning marketplace with Imperfect, which has been really cool to see. Wow.
0: That is super cool. All right, Caroline, last question before we part ways, and it's been my favorite over the last few interviews, and like I said before, it's this notion of the idea graveyard. I think most founders are alike in that we're constantly thinking of new ideas and we're putting them into our ideas or our notes app on our phone. (laughs) But most of the time, they end up just sitting there, right? You build this laundry list, but they end up rotting away because you don't have the time to work on them. Maybe they're out of your particular domain expertise. But anyways, my, my question for you is, what are one of these ideas that are rotting away in your idea graveyard?
1: Peter, packaging is the bane of my existence. For the last <laughs> two years, I have every single time we try to source packaging, it's a nightmare. It's horrible experience. It's a process straight out of the 50s where a man wearing a toupee literally shows up at my door and like is trying to sell me cardboard boxes that <laughs> I don't understand. The pricing is not transparent. You have to get a quote. They, yeah, it's a nightmare. So if, if if renewal mill doesn't work out in the long term, I would like to create some sort of streamlined packaging service where you, it's a maybe it's a database or something to like very easily the Amazon for packaging, like go on, find exactly what I'm looking for, the supplier in my area. I can check all the different categories I want. I want it to be compostable, I want to know all of the, the barrier specs in one place how much it's going to cost, when it's going to get there. Yeah. That would make my life so much easier. And I think for a lot of my fellow CPG friends, it would be a dream because right now we're stuck with really shoddy nineties websites that we try to find on Google or using our like little Slack channels to sort of communicate like, Oh, did you have a packaging supplier that you found that worked? And then some company in Israel that might be doing compostable packaging and you know, we're already swimming in plastics. We need to do better in packaging. So while there's this mm-hmm. simultaneous innovation in sustainable packaging, we need fi- we need ways to find it and to streamline that. And I know personally, it's a huge headache for me. So I'd love to help that be a, a, a better option. I'd love
0: that. Caroline, before we part ways, uh, I'd love to roll the red carpet. Are there any final call to actions, hiring needs, any announcements you want to make to our listeners, the floor is yours.
1: <laughs> well, we're we're proud to have been incubated and grown here in the Bay Area, but Renewal Mill is, is looking to, to head nationwide. So we just got a UNFI approved official. So we're looking to come to, to grocery stores near you. So if you are eager to try some upcycled Ocar products, um, definitely let us know. We'd love to, to reach out to you in your area. And then if you're uh, an entrepreneur or producer, and want to just give upcycled ingredients a shot we'd be love we'd love to get in contact and get you some samples and and help you create the next next greatest upcycled food product for the market
0: that's amazing caroline thank you so much for coming on the show this was a pleasure
1: thanks so much for having me it's been a, a ton of fun and i uh, really love what you're doing here
0: thanks caroline if you enjoyed the episode please consider subscribing and writing us a review. Also, if you have any recommendations about a founder or a company that you'd like to see on the show, let us know. Message us on social at InGoodHands. Also, special shout-out to Dan Mahoney, who produced this week's episode, and Eddie Knuckles, our music director. I'm your host, Peter Levin. You can find me on Instagram or Twitter at Levin. And that's it. Looking forward to bringing you another new episode next Tuesday.